Today on Peace Talks Radio, Gary Slutkin, an epidemiologist skilled at controlling infectious diseases, seeks to cure violence by treating it like an infectious disease. When asking, you know, what is the greatest predictor of violence, of a violent event, the answer was a preceding violent event. And that kind of like um, really hit the nail on the head because that's you know, also exactly the situation with flu with TB or colds even. And later, a conversation with former intelligence officer Ray McGovern about presidents and peacemaking in his 23 years of preparing briefings for the White House and about an effort to make war illegal in 1928. These folks, uh, especially Frank Kellogg, who was Secretary of State, given what had happened World War I, uh, he sought a way to ban a war pure and simple. An old idea to stop war, a new idea to cure violence, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and we're talking about peace because um, well, someone has to, and we think it's important. Glad you're listening. Today, two interviews. In a few minutes, former intelligence officer Ray McGovern talks about presidents and peacemaking in his 23 years of preparing briefings for the White House and about a 1928 effort to make war illegal. But first, Dr. Gary Slutkin, an epidemiologist who, after working for years trying to control multiple epidemics in Africa, returned to the U.S. and started to consider what people were calling an epidemic, a violence epidemic, in his home of Chicago. He eventually founded Cure Violence, a non-governmental organization that attempts to treat violence like an infectious disease. Maps and graphs were charting the spread of violence in Chicago that sent him on his way to this new approach of how to reduce violence in our cities. Well, I mean, that is really what um, made me feel that I was seeing something familiar when I was looking at the maps and charts and graphs and of uh, violence in the U.S. cities, they were appearing to me just as the same types of maps and figures and graphs that I'd been viewing for so many years, looking at the spread of cholera or the spread of TB or AIDS. They were just at the same type of clustering, the same type of waveforms, so it, it seemed familiar. I was a little surprised by that, actually. So with those maps and graphs looking so familiar, tell me about how you began to frame the treatment plan around the pillars used to treat infectious diseases. You added components that uh, maybe intuitively people wouldn't think would work uh, on uh, limiting violence. Well, um, besides the, the figures and the maps and, and so on, we, you know, we were doing a lot of other research as to what had worked and to try to figure out some of the characteristics of, of violence in populations. And th there was this one other piece of the puzzle, which was when asking, you know, what is the greatest predictor of violence, of a violent event? The answer was a preceding violent event. And that kind of like um, really hit the nail on the head because that's, you know, also exactly the situation with flu or with TB or colds even. So it became clear that we would have to be doing something that interrupts that transmission or that spread or that contagion, that we'd have to get more in there 
to prevent one event leading to another and also to try to find out how, when an event might happen to try and, in a way, cut it off. That's where the violence interrupter piece of this came in. Well, and that's the most intriguing part of it, I think, for most of us looking at it. It seems that the, the most intriguing, challenging, crucial, and in some cases controversial step was to craft this plan for violence interrupters. And in this model, uh, real people are stepping into the middle of the epidemic of violence and breaking the pattern of passing the disease onward. I'm curious, what did those early brainstorming sessions sound like as your team developed this plan, particularly with regard to the interrupters? Well, um, let me say that this did not go fast. I mean, it really took us five years to, d to do a design. In other words, we like went into a design lab mode in a way of exploring you know, what would be feasible, what had been tried before, what would have high impact. And um, so there was a lot of conversation with people on the street while having simultaneous conversations with researchers who had tried various things. Well, I'm imagining that in those many meetings that you had, uh, even on your own staff, but certainly when you connect with neighborhood people, there was quite a bit of skepticism uh, quite a bit of saying, man, you just don't understand uh, what is going to work and what you're dealing with here. Uh, do you remember those kind of conversations? Oh, my God, yeah. In fact, it's still going on. But then, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, we were told all kinds of things that were needed to be done in order to reduce violence. You know, you're going to have to, you know, improve the schools, improve the education, get the families to come back together again, get rid of the poverty, you know, there are all of these conversations. And then there's a whole other set of conversations having to do with the guns and, you know, we need to do that. And you're not going to succeed unless you, and then fill in the blank, you know, all of these predisposing ideas. And then, of course, there's the whole other realm of, you know, you need to really teach people a lesson and, you know, we really need to crack down more. So all of the existing beliefs were... Um, you know, we're not thrown away or given up, nor have they even to this day. Right. Um, and I would say that a lot of people who are doing good work trying to solve problems in our communities uh, put a lot of energy into what we call on this program, and I'm sure you do too, an upstream approach where you are looking at source causes for difficulties, which is part of what you just described. Uh, and I understand you saying that those uh, realities aren't ignored in your conversations, but it seems like often the active work that Cure Violence or Cease Fire or some of these individual programs are doing is not doing a lot of the upstream work uh, in the sort of classic sense that those people were probably thinking about it as they raise concerns in your meetings. Is that correct? Yeah. I want to just clarify, since you mentioned ceasefire, you know, ceasefire is the name that some of the cure violence um, applications use, and then others go by all kinds of names all around the country, in fact, all around the world. There's all kinds of names applied to people who are using the overall cure violence method. You allow them to personalize it and pick something that is particular or resonates with uh, their own community, right? 
Exactly right, Paul. Perfect. I mean, they no one wants to take on someone else. They want to have their own identity and their own um, visibility, and that is, you know, part of what really makes um, cure violence work. Is that it's really the neighborhood itself and the people themselves in the neighborhood that are doing the reversal, that are doing the transformation. But you know, to the earlier point that you made about um, you know root causes and things like that, it's. Um, you know, the analogy here is kind of that in, in situations where there's, let's say, TB, for example, when you have crowding and poverty and all of these horrible factors going on in a community or a, a city, um, if TB isn't there, then TB doesn't happen. You still have all these awful things, poverty and crowding and bad nutrition, but without the uh, TB in there, then there's no more TB to cause more TB. And it turns out it's the same thing with violence. You can have all these um, horrible conditions, and this has been done, research has been done, And but when when kids aren't exposed to violence and they haven't been traumatized themselves, then they subsequently don't do it. So the real um, exposure is not the exposure to the circumstances, it's the exposure to the violence itself. So the root cause of violence is violence, which causes more violence in the same way that flu causes more flu and TB causes more TB. So we've, we've been successful in these, many of these, all of these other areas, even diarrheal disease where there's bad water and bad sanitation, we've been able to drop the um, rate of the pro the process itself, its replication, even in the setting of uh, the other conditions. So the the actual root cause of violence is the violence itself, and then what's driving it is you know the way the brain processes seeing it and having been traumatized by it, which then causes people to do more of it. Now people don't get it, see that they see the conditions, they don't see what's going on in the brain. So the belief systems re remain on what is, in a way, visible. <laughs> you know, microorganisms were not visible, so people thought it was the conditions. And this, it's, it's a it's very uh, similar situation. Dr. Gary Slutkin, let's talk about the interrupters. So just like in an epidemic, you hire people with special skills to reach the population with information and messages uh, that could change behaviors that would stop the chain of the disease, of violence in this case, from continuing, stop the disease from spreading. So what skills for disease interrupters are common to all infectious disease work, and what were specialized to this disease of the spread of violence, would you say? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, Ebola is an interesting um, cousin to this problem. So, but I mean, in a way, so is HIV, AIDS, and, and others. The, the most important thing is who is selected as workers so that the people who they're talking to um, trust them. So they have access and they, to the people themselves in their homes, on the streets, rather than running away from these people. These are people who they already know and see them as part of their same kind of peer group. And they trust them, and um, they also know that they have, they're talking to them in their own interest. So if you have someone who's working on violence, you want to have people who um, come from the same 
subgroups even, not just same group. You know, they were in the same cliques or in the same gangs or in the same, worked, walked the same streets. Some of them are even cousins or they know a lot of the people. So they are able to find out what happened at the party last night or who's upset about something. And, you know, in Ebola, it, these were people who were, you know, neighbors who were able to talk to people about, you know, well, it, it's not a good idea to be, you know, kissing and hugging your mom even though she's dying and she's your mom. Well, that's a very hard thing to talk to someone or, you know, to be, not be touching in, in burial but to use it, do it in a different way. But that has to come from people who are really trusted by the people who you're talking with. So the first part of this is these, the selection of the health workers who are out there. And then, of course, the, what it is that you're training them in has to do with what are the behaviors that need to be changed. For Ebola, we just mentioned you know, not touching some people who are sick. For HIV, it's, you know, you actually can't know who's infected. And if you don't know, you really should use a condom or not to do. For violence, it's really, you know, helping to um, cool somebody down when they're angry and able to buy time and then helping them to see it differently and to get socially in a way what we call off the hook so they feel like they're still cool even though they didn't do it. You call them credible messengers, and you've talked about the fact that they have to be trained in persuasion, buying time, and reframing things that I, I gather that uh, that they are trained up in in the program, but they also have to have some natural skills for those things. Uh, but oftentimes, these folks are people who have dabbled in crime and violence, uh, uh, ex-gangbangers and, and, and small-time drug dealers or more, in some cases, who have uh, made a commitment to turn their lives around, but it's a very delicate balance of high-level skill and street experience often, isn't it? It's, it, it? You said it right. It's it's a delicate balance, but this is um, the world of epidemic control and the world of um, of behavior change. It's actually the world of health. You know, we, we hire... Um, people who used to be involved in sex work to reach people who are now involved with sex work. Um, we re use people who were using drugs to, to, if we're talking about um, changing drug use behaviors. But likewise, we use refugees to reach refugees and moms to reach moms. So the, the fact that we're using in uh, workers who were previously involved in um, possibly violent situations themselves, it's not to do them a favor, it's because it's really the way the technology works, it's the way behavior change is really affected. It re requires that the person who's trying to help you is someone who you trust, and he's giving it to you um, because, and you can see this, it's really in your interest. He gets wh who you are and where you're coming from, you know, how upset you are, what your thinking is. He's got, he talks the way you do, and he makes sense to you. Gary, there was a documentary produced on this program back in 2011 as it was rolling out in Chicago by filmmaker Steve James. A lot of folks know him from his documentary, Hoop Dreams, where you, you really see the challenge of the interrupters going into these hot zones of violence and trying to apply all these tools of patience and empathy and listening and logic to, 
people who in some cases are just hopping mad. Uh, they've just had a family member killed or arrested. The one scene with an agitated young man named Flamo. All right, but I'm that's just saying, it. so if you go to jail, who will take care of your kids? That's the thing. God taking care of us now. He going to take care of Just like when I do what I'm going to do, he going to take care of me too. But you was locked up before. Man, I've been, I'm 32 years old. I've been locked up 15 years in my life. What that mean? At one point, he says to the... Uh, the, the the fellows who are working with him, what can you do for me? How can you help me? I mean, the only thing, like I say, the only thing I could do is try to get to know you more, spend a little time with you, and try to work with so you. So that means man. you will take me out to dinner then. We can go to lunch right now, and we can sit down and we can talk about this problem. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, we could go out. Mm. That's what you want to do. Mm. We could go out now. Right now? Yeah. Let me go put my pistol up. The interrupters wind up kind of adopting Flamo over a period of time that allows him to stay out of trouble and land a job. But these are scary moments when you watch them. The interrupters are going in with no tools of violence with them. They're trying to make peace. Uh, Gary, you've seen these films and heard these stories. How do you feel when you hear and see them actually taking place? And what makes you confident that it's still the right approach? Well, the, the confidence comes really from, I mean, the, the cure violence method's in tremendous demand, primarily because it's, um, it's saving mayors money, it's saving taxpayers money, and it's making neighborhoods safer. Um, and the stories, you know, some of the stories are shown in the f- film, Interrupters. They know what to do, you see, it, and, um, and that's the whole thing. These workers are very, very highly skilled. Um, like the the scene you're look, talking about of Kobe interacting with Flamo in the the film, I mean Kobe has been in that situation hundreds of times, and so it may look like he's kind of you know ad hoc and kind of winging it. He it can analyze it. Okay, he's hot, but he's not doing this and that, and I'm just you know keep him talking, validate what he has to say. You know, and and also, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, Kobe is meeting Flamo. They know each other. Kobe was sent um, because he's someone who who Flamo already knows, so they can swear and yell. But Kobe isn't at risk. In the film, I believe Flamo actually calls Kobe and says, "This is going down," su- suggesting that he needs or wants the help in a way. Yeah, that's common. That's common. People, they call, and they they call about themselves. They also call about their friends. You know, my friend is about to do an armed robbery, and, I, and you know, he's, going, he's crazy. And they don't want to see their friend do this because they're afraid, you know, he's going to get hurt or he's going to have to go to prison or something, and he's only just come out. So they call us, too. Moms call us, you know. There's a mom who her son was loading up weapons downstairs in the basin with the friends. She doesn't want to call law enforcement on her son, but she'll call us too. So yeah, much of the neighborhoods will know the cure violence workers because we put our phone numbers out there and we've met them all. And so they will call when um, they need help. And Flamo needed help, not just about what he was going to do. His situation was a mess. You know, I don't know if his brother or a couple of his brothers were also arrested. His mom was mishandled and mistreated. And, you know, he, like, he, he was a mess. His family situation at the moment had really been disturbed. And it was like, what do I do? And we can help him without him making it worse, making bad um, choices. 
well, choice seems to be the key word there. It's like all of a sudden people in these desperate situations where they observe or feel themselves leaning toward violence, there's an option that's known in the community that wasn't there months or years ago. That's right. What we've done is fill fill a gap. So Gary Slutkin, what were the earliest results of trying this approach? Well, the first time that we put um, what we now call the cure violence approach into a neighborhood, it was in West Garfield Park on the west side of Chicago, which at the time was the worst um, police district for killings in the country. And there was uh, a drop of 67%. This was in the year 2000. It dropped from 43 shootings and killings to 14. And it happened really fast. I mean, there was a 90-day period without any shootings, and then there was one and then another 90-day period. And it was an immediate effect, which, by the way, is what the researchers have been finding over and over, that there's an immediate effect that's highly impactful and immediate and sustained. So we, there was this 67% drop, and then, you know, our funders said, you know, well, that, are we sure it wasn't a fluke? They're going to do it again, and we got 45% drop with a slightly lesser amount of the intervention over the next four um, communities. And then it was put into uh, Chicago in a larger way, and the city as a whole went down by 25%. Still, only about 25% of the city was covered. And since then, there have been all kinds of replications in Baltimore and New York and Kansas City and Puerto Rico and South Africa and Mexico and Honduras and even in Iraq. So the, the, these kinds of... These kinds of numbers of 40%, 50%, 60% drops are, are fairly common now. Um, in, uh, and there have been multiple evaluations of the work, I should say. Justice Department, CDC, Hopkins have all done independent evaluations of the cure violence method. And it's, you know, it's fairly reliably effective at making a neighborhood safer. And, you know, in doing so without the arrest um, side effect, you know, just by helping people change. And, um, and then it even diffuses into next neighborhoods. Later in our program, more from Dr. Gary Slutkin, epidemiologist and founder of the Cure Violence Program in Chicago. Next up, former CIA officer Ray McGovern, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. 
Next up, a conversation with former U.S. intelligence officer Ray McGovern, who prepared daily briefings for many presidents, both Republicans and Democrats. Since retiring in the early 90s, he's been an active commentator and critic of both Republican and Democratic presidential administrations. But he's also a keen historical scholar who visited our home base in Albuquerque on the anniversary of a 1928 international deal called the Kellogg-Briand Pact that attempted back then to make war illegal and an international crime. You're here today, August 27th, which mm -hmm. is the anniversary of the Kellogg-Briand Act. A lot of people don't know about that moment in history. And when they find out about it, then there's a little bit of a disappointment, like, oh, well, that sounds like that would have been a good idea, but obviously the 20th, 21st centuries has not been paying much attention to it. Mm -hmm. Talk about why it's still uh, is a moment in history that's worth reflecting on, worth bringing back up. Mm -hmm. Well, we're talking 1928, so about 10 years after the First World War. Uh, wars of that magnitude have a way of lingering in their effects, and these folks, uh, especially Frank Kellogg, who was Secretary of State, felt really strongly that uh, given what had happened World War I, and given the turbulence that everyone was sort of expecting in Europe, and the 20s was in 23 especially was a very turbulent time in Germany for example uh, he sought a way to ban a war pure and simple ends you know and uh, period and he persuaded Briand a, a Frenchman uh, to, to join him the Frenchman wanted to delimit it a lot but uh, Kellogg stayed strong and in the event 83 senators uh, voted for it, one voted against it. Uh, it was uh, it was regarded as sort of the crest of the times and as I mentioned uh, Kellogg won the Nobel Peace Prize the following year, uh, 1929. 1929, a very auspicious year. But uh, that that betokens the universal respect that this this man had and the, the, uh, the acceptance of the idea that we don't want to do another war. Now, other things intervened, of course, and uh, it's much easier to do war than to make a lasting peace. And the terms exacted on the German people and created a fertile field for Hitler and his regime to uh, come to power. One of the points I tried to make tonight or this afternoon was simply that uh, he came to power, but uh, there was no real resistance. People kind of watched as though from a, a box at the theater. And I see that happening in our country today. So, what am I saying here? I'm saying that, as Dr. King has said, there is such a thing as too late, okay? And uh, unless Americans are sensitized to the need to stand up for their rights, literally, their rights under the Constitution, then, uh, you know, if they can't find their voice, and if, as is the case now, religious institutions are too timid or too populated by wealthy people who are actually profiteering on the economic system, which gives more and more to the 1% and less and less to the 99%, unless the churches and other institutions speak out so that people can kind of learn and be aware of what's happening to them, well, then you have the kind of uh, situation where uh, people become little more than serfs, they need two to three jobs a day, 
and their kids don't get to go to college because that's just beyond their, their uh, expense accounts. Well, with talking about percentages, with such a small percentage of Americans who actually have direct connection to the military in terms of there not being a draft anymore, um, isn't this a big issue in terms of Americans finding their voice or uh, being concerned? It only happened in the Vietnam War because so many young men and women, well, so many young men, were uh, engaged. It's not the case anymore. Well, that's a very prescient question, uh, and it's exactly right. Um, you know, President Nixon did a lot of horrendous things. But the worst thing he did, in my opinion, was to abolish the draft. The Founding Fathers had no idea that we would ever have a mercenary army, that we would be able to send young people off to war without a congressional opinion and without any dissent because, quote, nobody important, end quote, would be liable or vulnerable to a draft. Now, I served in a draft army. Uh, I served with doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs. I served with everyone. There was, it was a, it was a leavening, uh, leveling uh, and a leavening uh, experience. Everybody was in it, and nobody could duck out. Indeed, there were congressmen, there were senators that were in Vietnam, and they came back and they played a constructive role in telling the rest of America what was really going on. Right now, what you have because of this, quote, volunteer army, you have what is really a poverty draft. Now, that's not American, okay? The poverty draft, well, most of our soldiers are made up from people from the inner city and people from towns in this country of less than 50,000 people. That's a fact. Why do they join? Because there's very limited economic opportunity in these places. There's very little educational opportunity. Only, there's hardly any jobs. And so you want three squares? You want a fairly uh, good salary? You want to, to work for 20 years and be able to retire? Man, it's very, very attractive. It's seductive and it's unjust. It's unjust to the core. And so when we talk about our troops out there and we wave the flag when they come back, well, let's just ease our own consciences because we know that we're not liable. They're doing our dirty work for us. And as I say, that's unconscionable. It's not American. And when people thank me for my service, you know, I, I say, well, you know, why are you thanking me for my service? Mine, of course, goes back a couple of decades. But young people come back, and, and many of them have PTSD. And I've, I know some that always say, oh, thank me for my... You, you want to thank me for killing a whole bunch of uh, people, including women and children? Well, that's, that's bizarre. Why do you thank me for my service? I'm ashamed of it. So we need that kind of brutal clarity, and uh, not many of the returning service people are capable of that. They still need their jobs. And uh, worse still, and this is really important, uh, the way our government has changed the law. It used to be, ever since the Civil War, that uh, the government, federal government, was prohibited from using the U.S. Army 
uh, in a interior police function, uh, you know, with, uh, a, a inside a country to put down insurrection or whatever. Now, there, there could be exceptions to that with martial law, but but the 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 law was on the books. It was called Pasi Comitatus, and it prevented uh, anyone from using the U.S. Army in this kind of role. Now, as soon as Occupy seemed to be getting critical mass, they did two things. Number one, they got the governors hooked up with these intelligence cells involving FBI, CIA, NSA, and everybody else, and they did a job on these demonstrators. That's number one. Number two, since the demonstrations continued in many places, they worried about, you know, what's going to happen if it's not 5,000 people in Washington, but 50,000, okay? Ooh, what do you do? Well, uh, somebody said, well, you could use the U.S. Army. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, will they follow orders? Darn right they'll follow orders. They need three squares. They've been ingrained and taught to follow orders. Orders against their own citizens? Well, we'll say those citizens are cooperating with terrorists, or we'll say the citizens like uh, Vladimir Putin, or we'll say they'll believe us and they'll do what we tell them. Oh, okay, change the law. And now we can now we can have the U.S. Army come in here and uh, we can get home to our cocktails without any problem. And so they did. And not only that, but the National Defense Authorization Act authorizes the security forces and the U.S. Army to come into this room, grab me, and say, come with us, Mr. McGovern, put me in Guantanamo or any other place they darn well please, not forever, um, but just till the end of the war on terror, right? And would I have any uh, habeas corpus rights? No. Now, they can do this without charge, without jury. Uh, they could just put you away for the duration. Now, that seems like an exaggeration. It hasn't been done yet, but the law enables it to be done, and that's how parlous we are. That's how, how difficult it is to persuade American people that, you know, if you don't stand up now and fight for your rights, there is such a thing as too late. Well, your intelligence career puts you in the White House uh, consistently between 1960 and uh, 83, thereabouts? Well, uh, that would be an exaggeration. When I was a junior officer, I didn't get anywhere near the White House. Uh, I used to write things, and those things got to the White House. Now, well, well, let me just pose the question anyway, but your career spanned over um, all these presidents, and then you've been engaged in watching the other uh, presidential characters. And I'm just wondering which among them, if any, you know, seemed to you to be most driven toward peace and world affairs. Well, that's easy. Jimmy Carter, a real respect for human rights. He did some bizarre things that everybody said couldn't be done. And he uh, elicited a lot of laugh stock from people who made fun of him, and, and I suppose had reason to make fun of the, the Georgia, the Georgia folks that he brought in with him. Uh, but his heart was in the right place. You could see that from what he did subsequently to his presidency. And uh, uh, had he not been sabotaged by the oil war and by the uh, by the really underhanded deal that Reagan's people made with the Ayatollahs uh, to keep those uh, hostages until uh, after the election. 
you recall there were 52 hostages that the uh, Iranians uh, stole from our embassy, put them in jail. There were negotiations all through that election year. Uh, Carter did everything he possibly could, including try to rescue them, and uh, failed. And it became known on the day of the inauguration of Ronald Reagan that uh, the Iranians were going to release them forthwith. And uh, the investigative reporter for whom I work, Robert Perry, has written a book called The October Surprise, and he documents chapter and verse how Bobby Gates, uh, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Casey met with the Iranians months before the election. Said, don't release them yet. Yeah, don't release them yet. And we guarantee if you release them on Organization Day, we're going to sell you a couple things that we haven't been able to send you. Right? So it's really, yeah. I mean, well, and Carter said at the beginning of his, his, his cancer struggle that uh, his one regret was that he didn't send in a second helicopter because he thought he'd probably get reelected. If, if, if they hadn't run into the sandstorm and a second helicopter might have been able to free the hostages, would you agree with that assessment? No, I wouldn't. I mean, I think I, I, like, I like him, but that was, a, that was a, you know, I was to do something. And uh, the impediments to freeing those people in one piece without them being killed seemed extraordinary. I was overseas at the time, and when I heard that they had tried it, you know, um, I wasn't surprised that a glitch occurred, and uh, maybe it's better that it occurred where it did rather than them trying to storm the places where the hostages were. In the event they got out, okay, that's the big thing. And we're just talking about another year in captivity, and they weren't only, only the CIA guys were treated really roughly and sub subjected to some torture. The rest were just pretty much kept in a jail. Now that's a big deal for the summer long. Was it 999 days or something like that? But uh, I, I don't. I, I like to give Jimmy Carter the benefit of the doubt, but I think he's got a little wishful thinking that if he had sent one more helicopter, that uh, would have changed the history. One of the great parlor conversations or online blog topics, and you brought it up today, is whether Barack Obama deserved the. Nobel Peace Prize he was awarded in 2009. He seemed even embarrassed by it at the time. Uh, if you go online now, you're able to see articles that say he still hasn't earned it, that his steps with Cuba and Iran bring him a step closer. Um, where would you suggest that so close to the end of his term that Obama is going to land as a peacemaker at all in his administration? Well, I confess to having been surprised by Barack Obama and John Kerry and sticking to their guns, so to speak, in the negotiations with Iran. They were, have been, and still are under extreme pressure from the Israel lobby, uh, from all kinds of folks that uh, do not want the Iranians to play their proper role in that part of the world. And they stuck to it. They got a terrific deal. I mean, <laughs> what I've been saying in my lectures is, is this. Most Americans have no idea that 16 U.S. intelligence agencies decided, as they put it, quote, with high confidence, end quote, unanimously. Back in 2007, they concluded that Iran had stopped working on a nuclear weapon at the end of 2003. 
whoa, and had not resumed work on that weapon. Now, that judgment came in 2007. It has been re reaffirmed, reiterated every year since, okay? That does not mean they haven't been working on uh, generating electricity through nuclear power. They are, they're doing that in spades. But you need separate work to create a nuclear warhead. And we know that they haven't been doing that since the end of 2003, which is 12 years ago, okay? Now, so as I say, it says to me, we have finally got on a piece of paper, uh, an ironclad commitment from Iran to stop doing what we know they stopped doing at the end of 2003. And we're going to monitor it just as closely or more closely now. Now, that sounds funny, right? But if that's what it takes, that's all right. Yeah, this is a good deal. Let's, let's do it. And let's get this bugaboo out of this relationship. We'll have more with former intelligence officer Ray McGovern later in our program. Next up, back to some more conversation with Dr. Gary Slutkin, epidemiologist and creator of Cure Violence, the program that is treating violence like a contagious epidemic. More when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Hear more at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. More now from our conversation with Dr. Gary Slutkin, an epidemiologist who is also the founder of the Cure Violence program that's headquartered in Chicago. They're learning to reduce violence by treating it like they would any infectious disease epidemic. So you've tried this in Chicago and St. Louis and Baltimore. Tell us a little bit more about how you find these people who wind up being violence interrupters. Well, the, the selection of these workers is, is not done by me. It's done by our staff who are um, very street savvy. Um, it's a very sequential, orderly, systematic process whereby the neighborhood that we're trying to help cool down and make safe is mapped it's not just geographically mapped, but it's mapped as to you know who are the main groups involved, who are the main cliques, who are the main individuals. And the purpose of that is to find out who we need to recruit to reach them, who needs to be reached. So it's not an open ad in some weekly paper. <laughs> You're actually recruiting people the way a basketball coach might recruit uh, skilled positions for their team. Well, the word does get out. And a lot of people come and want to um, be helpful for this, but not everybody could do it because not everybody, you know, you, then, the, you know, some of the research is, so we're talking to these, 
this group or these two groups and you know and we're trying to find out you know who is this would this guy be someone who you would be able to listen to does he make sense to you you know is he um, someone who you think would be someone who would be able to um, be a good interrupter for you and um, and we're doing this with all of, of the groups and then of course I mean what are we really looking for we're looking for this credibility and trust and access um, but we're also looking for two other important things one that they're not involved now and you know we're like about 98 to 99 percent good at that um, but people do slip back but we're so we're looking for as best as anyone can tell that they're you know really on this side of the line now and then the third thing is that they're really kind of what you we might our workers say you know really hungry to help they really want to help people not make the mistakes that they made and then of course you know we want to then they go into you know a lot of um, uh, interviewing conversation and then there they begin training and the training is very intensive and pay is an incentive to some degree. Absolutely, they're work, they're um, they're paid at, like health workers are paid all over the world, and they are supported by supervisors and um, by um, the training teams, and they document their work, and you know they're accountable for you know helping to keep the neighborhood safer. Is that a good paying job? I don't even know what health workers make around the world. Well, of course, this varies by country, and which have different levels and standards and so on. But in, in the U.S. situation, many of the interrupters and outreach workers are being paid in the high 20s or low 30,000s, and usually with benefits and things. But this, of course, varies by, you know, the organization and the city um, as well, because, you know, you need to, it's, there's a lot of equity issues here with the other workers and those particular um, partnering organizations. I am guessing that when you try to sell this to a city council or a county commission, uh, or suggest it rather, uh, there's going to be some opposition saying what we need is more police. We can't be spending money on this kind of a adventurous program. As you said, there that, that that's a, there's a bad guy philosophy uh, where punishment needs to happen in these violent scenarios. Uh, are you saying people caught on tape beating or shooting another shouldn't be punished, that punishment's not a part of it? H how do you work that obstacle when it's brought up uh, to you or one of your colleagues? Well, um, thanks for asking that. You know, the city councils are in several cities. I think that there have been presentations made on invitations to us from three city councils just in the last month, and they're wanting to do this. And... Um, and wanting uh, and understanding it, and they like the data, and they like the approach. So I, I think that city councils generally are, are looking for something um, either different or additional to law enforcement. And I, you know, I'm not making an argument against people having to um, be um, laws being enforced, but what we're saying is we really want to keep people from making those mistakes and keeping so our work is on our work is on this side of the line of of keeping people from crossing the line and if they cross there there's still um, law enforcement measures to be done but what we can what we've shown is that somewhere between 40 and 70 percent of the time we're able to prevent the events from happening there and um, there's now several 
I mean, Baltimore, I just want to add this, Baltimore had four, has four communities that have gone in the last year or year and a half, more than a year without any killing at all. And these were very high rate places. And so where Baltimore went up, which was the other side of town, or the adjacent area to one of these um, kept quiet places, they're now putting in more of um, the cure violence method called safe streets. So cities are really turning to, to this direction. But it, it isn't an argument against the need for um, you know, some of the usual things as well. Amina Matthews is a woman who is also depicted in the documentary who's another violence interrupter. Someone called her a violence interrupter golden girl because she knew how to command respect from the streets. Her father was one of the most powerful gang leaders in Chicago, Jeff Fort. When I was about your age, I was making some real stupid decisions and some stupid calls that was causing me, my life, blood on my hands and my head. Stop. Who does this baby belong to? Who does this little shorty belong to? He just hanging around y'all? He, he just hanging around y'all, right? So he see everything that you all do, right? So if this brother right here catch a case and do a hundred years, whose fault is it? It's his fault? Our fault. Teach him righteous. Y'all got it? Y'all got it? Yeah. What about the recruiting regimen for these programs is is helping to uh, come up with Amina Matthews? And what does someone's story like hers represent in the success of your program? Well, it, it adds credibility um, when someone has a, a background and people know their name or they know their family. It, it, um, they're worth talking to. People know that. And that gives, um, it lets them, so if Amina would come to someone and say, listen, this isn't a good idea, it might me be very, very meaningful. I might, I was in, uh, or just happened to be standing next to one of our interrupters, Carl Bell, went by the name Goody, received a call while we were just talking about something else. And, I, and I'm just hearing Carl say, yeah, you don't have to do it. Yeah, it, it'll be fine. You don't have to do it. Yeah, and then he hangs up and he rejoins the conversation with me. Well, what happens is, you know, someone shot his, somebody's cousin, and he's calling Carl to basically get permission so that he could go back to his friends and say, you know, Goody said, you know, not it, it, keep it cool, don't do anything. So he kind of didn't really want to do anything, but now he kind of because of um, Carl or Goody's like, you know, status. He's able, people would get it and feel okay about him for not doing it. Now, in your TED Talk of a few years back, which we will post a link to on our website, peacetalksradio.com, you said a number of interesting things, but you sort of described how you were looking for something else completely different to do, maybe even leave a disease work or something, and, and then you wound up moving in this direction. Now, Many years down the road from starting this program, uh, how do you feel about the future of it uh, as a program, and how do you feel about your own personal involvement in the in the future of this kind of work? Wow. So yeah, cure violence has really evolved, and um, we I feel like 
really we have to uh, do more and um, be less shy. And, um, you know, we're being asked to be helpful in conflict zones and in the Middle East. I mean, I was just uh, half an hour ago on the phone about, the, you know, our, our plans. We're funded by the European Union to work in Syria to help broker ceasefires locally and prevent some from breaking down. So, and, you know, the cities are, you know, actually going up right now. About um, just a little less than half the cities have gone up by 20% because the existing models aren't working that well. And so I'm feeling that, you know, we need, just really need to tool up and kind of get the support to be able to do more. So I'm happy what we've been, with what we've been able to accomplish at Cure Violence. I mean, my role is changing uh, in that you asked about it. I mean, I'm more in the education space and trying to guide a little more. Um, but um, we, we have a lot, I feel we have a lot to do. I mean, besides the, situ the situation of violence is not really looking that much better. And it's not as if everybody is, as if the existing models are working. I mean, the U.S. cities are going up right now. And, you know, in the international arena, there's more people fleeing violence than any time since World War II. So we have to put in some, some new models to help these situations. So that's really what I'm feeling is that there's a lot more to do. And uh, it would be good to, you know, get the, the help and the, to be able to, uh, you know, work in partnership with others and help make uh, things safer for more people. Well, and finally, as you try to spread the word and maybe pitch the program to some other communities that are curious or found out about it, in addition to all of the obstacles and objections that we noted earlier in the conversation, uh, now you've got, you know, some statistics, you've got some history, you've learned some of your own lessons about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, are you still running into some of the same uh, uh, objections uh, what's making uh, it difficult to say this is a no-brainer, let's do it? Is it ex too expensive? Is it just uh, logistically difficult? Does it take too much partnership? What are the things that are making it difficult to sell broadly? Well, I think our our largest uh, challenges really are two. It's one is that there's still a, a prevailing worldview about this being bad people rather than um, a view that people are picking this up in um, an acquired, contagious way from each other. And uh, so uh, it, it, as a health issue, is still um, new, but like as you pointed out, there's tremendous data. And then, you know, in order to really do enough of this, it certainly requires uh, funds and support because the workers need to be paid. I mean, doing this in about, no, there's no thing that we did at World Health Organization that was able to be successful in reversing um, serious problems or epidemics through volunteers. We have to get the funds to um, pay workers. And then they're professional workers. And that's how the Ebola epidemic got reversed. It is the same thing. It was deploying paid workers who uh, had the right um, access and the right training, and then it, it, it melted away. But that required a lot of support, too. Here our complete interview with Dr. Gary Slutkin, epidemiologist and founder of Cure Violence, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. 
We'll close our program now with more from our conversation with former U.S. intelligence officer Ray McGovern, who reported intelligence to both Democratic and Republican presidents in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution is the topic of our program. It's Mm -hmm. what our listeners are tuning in for. What would you like to say to those people about engagement that seems probably hard for them to even imagine in their lives today that would make a difference? Another good question. Um, I would suggest that they uh, take the time and energy that it does take to become better informed on what's going on. The best program that uh, I advertise and that I watch five days a week, Monday through Friday, is Amy Goodman's democracynow.org. Then it really is incumbent upon people to realize that there is such a thing as too late. Then they need to visit their senators, their representatives. That means staying on beyond the time when they're welcome, stay on. And if you have gray hair like I do, be aware that you have a terrific advantage. Americans don't like to see people my age getting beat up. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm being serious here. Uh, young people, the attitude is, well, you gotta come with them. But old folks like me, you know, so put your body into it. Take, take a leap of faith. Uh, do some civil disobedience in a meaningful way. They might rough you up a little bit. They're not going to break your arm or, or, or kill you. And uh, people will see that even people our age, or especially people our age, take this stuff seriously. And that we mean to speak out in our own way, just as the churches, for example, in Germany and dare, I dare say in the U.S. today, cannot find their voice to do. So it may not be the instant success, but at least we would be being faithful faithful to our faith traditions and faithful to our constitution and the people who fought for us 230 years ago. And it's a big high because when you do this with people who are as dedicated as you, you'll find a a certain peace there that you would hardly imagine could exist. You find the affirmation of people that you respect and you find that, uh, you know, it's not about being successful. It's about being faithful and that the good is worth doing because it's good. To hear more of our interview with Ray McGovern, you can go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002 and find lots of other resources as well. It's also where to go to sign up for a monthly newsletter, the monthly podcast, or to make a contribution or vehicle donation to support the nonprofit work of Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio is produced by Good Radio Shows Incorporated separately and apart from your public radio station. In addition to financial support from individuals just like you, support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.